You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death's construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia, north to south, east to west, up and down and around, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. This program is coming to you from the studios of Free CR in Melbourne. My name's Joseph Toscana. This is the Anarchist World This Week. And if you wonder what anarchy is all about, no, it's not what you think it is. An Arcos without rulers. What's the anarchist uh, mission statement? You like that? A bit religious today. The mission statement was to create a society without rulers. And how do you create a society without rulers? You kneecap them. And how do you kneecap them? Well, rulers are able to determine your fate because of inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggle is the struggle to devolve power, that's sheer power, and it's the struggle to share wealth, hold wealth in common. And living in the common wealth of Australia, before that, the common wealth of Australia, I always wonder why the Commonwealth doesn't tend to trickle down. But that's another story. So that's the anarchist struggle. So if you're involved, involved in those struggles, whether you like it or not, not you have the mark of Cain on your forehead, the A in a circle, you're an anarchist. Now... What a fascinating week. What a fascinating week. I think, I, I think I'll start off with a reappraisal or a look at, new look at COVID-19. It's been a year since the first case was diagnosed and obviously it's had a profound impact on the world. Over 100 million people have been infected and that's people who've been tested. Obviously, the rates are much, much higher because in many developing countries, they don't have the facilities to test people. And the mortality rate is about uh, 2% around the world, which means about 2 million people have died directly as a cause of COVID-19. And um, if you thought it was a hoax, boys and girls, it's real. So we've got a number of things we need to look at. Now, Australia and New Zealand, but mainly Australia and New Zealand, have been relatively successful in containing COVID-19. And much of that is not due to our political masters and our corporate heavyweights. Much of that is due to the fact of our isolation because we're islands. We can determine who comes in and out of the country. And if you ask all those Australians who are still waiting to come back home months after they wanted to come back home and all those border closures that occurred between states and Australia, you can see that we have the luxury of being surrounded by water. 
and that, and obviously we are geographically isolated in comparison to the United Kingdom. I should call it disunited kingdom, uh, which is obviously next to Europe. So we have that isolation, which has been very useful. The second thing is what people forget is that we have a, a relatively good universal public health system. It's not perfect. It has many issues, especially for people who are waiting for elective uh, treatment. It can be very difficult and can be, take a long time. But as far as emergency care is concerned, we do have a strong public health sector. And that is a consequence of people like you and me being involved in struggles over the decades to ensure that we continue to have a public health sector irrespective of what various governments, especially Liberal National Party governments, have done to try to destroy the public health sector and promote the private health sector. So we have that infrastructure available which can deal with the situation. Unfortunately, during the deregulation, privatisation, corporatisation, uh, globalisation revolution, yes, I've used the four horsemen of the apocalypse again, during that particular period, we forgot about public health and especially the state of Victoria, which has had a mortality of over 850 people. Unnecessary, in my opinion, but, you know, because the public health sector was starved of funds. Let's not forget that the major advances that have been made in medicine has not been technological innovation, but public health, the introduction of sewage, the introduction of vaccination, the introduction of uh, hygiene, maternity clinics, and the list goes on and on. These were publicly owned, publicly funded. Now, these systems were destroyed, and we saw what happened in Victoria when we had the second wave of COVID-19. The system was not able to cope while in New South Wales, where they had a rudimentary public health system left. It was actually able to deal with the situation in a better way. So again, what a lesson we should have learned over the last year is the importance of a public health sector as well as a public hospital sector. And the third thing we need to think about is collective action. You like that word? Collective action. Now, irrespective of the draconian penalties which have been imposed by various state governments and individuals and organisations for breaking COVID-19 rules, the reality is that if people decided to break them en masse, there is nothing the state could have done, both at a local, at a state level and a federal level. Most as people living in this country decided that the health benefits outweighed the negatives. So it was our collective action. So let's pat each other on the back. It's our collective action as a society and communities which has assisted the limitation of COVID-19. Like, I was caught up in a COVID-19 scare in uh, December and I could have just ignored the whole thing, but I did the right thing, like 99.9% .9 of people in this community. They do the right thing. They, have, they, they get tested, they isolate, they lose income, but they do the right thing. So it's our collective effort. So the three things that have helped us in this country to contain the consequences of the spread of COVID-19 are not 
related to government action, government regulation and laws. They're related to, th- to collective effort, our collective effort, to try to minimise the disease and people voluntarily obeying the instructions because they make sense, the health instructions because they make sense. Secondly, a public health sector which continues to exist despite the efforts of successive state and federal governments to uh, dilute and ultimately destroy the public health sector, as we saw for the nursing home sector. And thirdly, our social isolation. So I think we need to congratulate ourselves as a community and as individuals for containing the virus. Now let's move on to the topic of conversation in 2021, and that's vaccination. Now I've publicly stated on this program before, I'll be rolling up my sleeve and getting vaccinated as soon as I'm eligible to be vaccinated. Because irrespective of the stories you hear about the problems of vaccination, the reality is it's a balancing act. Now, I'm old enough to remember the day when diphtheria was an issue, tetanus was an issue, polio was an issue, smallpox was an issue. And if you look at the history of this country, the history of colonisation, it wasn't just a matter of violence, it was a matter of germs. Before most Indigenous communities saw a white coloniser, 80%, up to 80% of the population had been killed by smallpox, measles, mumps, diphtheria, and the list goes on and on and on. And a uh, classic way of getting rid of those uh, pesky Aborigines who'd lived on your land for over 60,000 years was to actually give them smallpox-encrusted blankets. But that's another story. So vaccination. Now, I'm quite concerned about vaccination. I've spoken about this on the program before. I'm quite concerned when we privatised the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories, which was established in 1914 to provide serum and vaccine for the Australian people and privatised in 1994 by the Keating-led government, or could have been 96. You know, who knows why? for a miserable $294. And when you think that shares in uh, CSL now, which is privatised, are running at about 300 plus per share, and they'll sell for $2.94, you realise the mistake that was made there. But more importantly, around the world, the efforts to produce vaccines have to a significant degree been in the hands of the private sector. And what we are seeing today with the rollout of the vaccine or the non-rollout of the vaccine from various private institutions is the limitations of private sector. I mean, I'd like to see, not that I'll ever see it, but I'd like to see the actual World Health Organisation have its own team of scientists and access to scientists to provide, to develop vaccines for emerging pandemics and at the same time have the manufacturing capacity to provide vaccines for whoever whoever wants them around the world. Now, obviously, there'll be people who don't want them. That's their problem. 
But I'm quite happy to be vaccinated to ensure that herd immunity occurs to protect even those people who don't want to be vaccinated. That's the, that's the way the story goes. So think about it. In Australia, the situation was so dire two months ago that the Commonwealth Government gave CSL, transnational corporations these days, a billion dollars to ensure they would continue to produce vaccines in this country for another decade. How ridiculous. Now, if CSL was still in public hands, we'd have the scientific expertise to develop a vaccine, not just against COVID-19, but other potential uh, problems in the future. And more importantly, we'd have the manufacturing capacity to not only provide vaccination for everybody in this country, but at least provide vaccines for people in the Pacific region, which is a relatively poor region, who are going to have a lot, great deal of difficulty obtaining vaccines for their population. So there are lessons to be learnt. We have learnt many of these lessons. But I think the important thing to remember is always put the public interest before the interests of the private sector. All these private companies that are making vaccines and making vaccines to make a buck. A public company can be subsidised by the government of the day. It can provide vaccination at cost price, not, ha- not have to pay private corporations to provide those uh, vaccinations. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Now, we're going to jump through a number of issues today because there are a number of fascinating issues. Uh, As I said before, look, I can be as erudite as I like or as boring as I like. Uh, The dilemma is that uh, ultimately it's not what I say what matters. What matters is whether you take up these ideas and promote them amongst your circle of friends and ultimately, possibly, it may lead you to become involved in action. Now, the the story of the day of the last few days has been obviously the 26th of January and the push towards a treaty. And the other story of the day is the climate emergency. And it's quite interesting thinking about both those issues, as we saw with marriage equality, Both those issues can be incorporated within a capitalist framework that's private investment for private profit. There is nothing innately challenging to the capitalist system in the fight for a treaty. And there is nothing innately challenging for the capitalist system in the struggle to deal for climate emergency. Because what we've seen recently is how the marketplace, in inverted commas, that beast, the marketplace, is beginning to realise that you can't make a buck from fossil fuels. And if you're going to invest in fossil fuels, you're going to lose that money. And that's why the uh, dinosaurs in the National Party and sections of the Liberal Party are calling, are calling for the federal government to use public money to create fossil fuel energy production sources. The private sector has understood things have changed. The private sector has understood that the debate 
which was being pushed by the fossil fuel industry, that there was no climate emergency. A little bit similar to the debate which was pushed by the tobacco industry, that tobacco uh, didn't cause any issues in the population, is finished, dusted, done by. So they're looking by of mechanisms via which to make a buck. And that's what it's about. I mean, private enterprise, capitalism is about making a buck. It's about making money. It's no wonder that Tesla shares have skyrocketed, you know, through the roof over the last few months as people have realised that the ship is turning, that fossil fuels are yesterday's technology, that money is now pouring into green capitalism. That's right. So what does green capitalism mean? Green capitalism means centralisation of energy sources. Corporations like to have control. And you control things by centralising things. The more decentralised energy production the less able are private corporations able to make massive profits and hold the community at ransom. The more centralised energy sources, the easier it is for corporations to hold the community at ransom and charge ultimately whatever they like. And that's what we are seeing We are seeing the creation of huge solar farms, the creation of battery farms, the creation of wind farms, which are not decentralised, which are not run by local communities, which are not feed, you know, you don't feed electricity from your rooftop into into the grid, but which are controlled by these corporations whose ultimate responsibility is to make a profit irrespective of the consequences. So why is there so much resistance to negotiating a treaty with uh, First Nations people in this country, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, when it can be formulated in almost every other country? Commonwealth country has a treaty with its First Nations people. Look at New Zealand across the ditch. But the ultimate reality is, does a treaty really solve the issues that Indigenous Aboriginal Indigenous communities, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are currently dealing with. I think a treaty is essential. But what we need to look at is resources, allocation of resources, who owns resources, how they are used. Because in order to overcome the entrenched exploitation of Indigenous communities in this country, I think it's important to understand that a treaty which does not include compensation and ongoing reward for use of resources doesn't really solve anything, as we see in many other countries in the world where the same problems seem to occur in First Nations communities. So... Ultimately, it's important that we. the issue is inequality. Inequality in power and wealth. That is the central issue. 
It's no accident that we have more billionaires and millionaires in Australia than we've ever had in the history of this country. With the centralisation of wealth and power, fewer and fewer individuals have more and more influence in government policy. And you have influence in government policy by determining the parliamentary agenda. And nothing highlights this more than what we've seen with Google and Facebook during the current parliamentary inquiry as they basically say to the Australian government and the opposition, look, you want us to pay for content. And let's not forget that when this legislation was first introduced, that the the Commonwealth government, the Morrison-led government, only wanted Google and Facebook to pay Packer and the private barons for the use of their content. They didn't want them to pay the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and if it wasn't for the Greens in the Senate who refused support the legislation unless the same payment schedule was meted out to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, it wouldn't have occurred. So don't think that Mr Morrison and the federal government are actually pursuing Google and Facebook for your benefit. They're basically pursuing Google and Facebook for the benefits of people like Murdoch. That's right. That's what they're pursuing it. And at the same time, Google and Facebook are saying, well, we don't like what you're saying and we're going to take our bat and ball home. And considering it's the height of the cricket season, I think it's a fitting analogy. We will take our bat and ball home if we have to pay for the use of content. And that's what I mean by corporations having massive influence on parliamentary output, which means the laws which have been made. And we've seen this with the fossil fuel industry over the last few decades, have they continued to pressure parliament to not address the climate emergency. So it didn't matter how many times you and I over the last 50 years jumped up and down, The only reason that they're trying to tackle the climate emergency now is you can't make a buck from fossil fuels. So let's manipulate, centralise, control alternative energy sources so we can continue to make a buck on behalf of our major shareholders. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. It will be podcast the next 48 hours. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. If you wish to communicate, you can go to my Facebook page, Joseph Toscano or Toscano for the Public. You can go to the Twitter screen, you can go to the Public Interest Before Corporate Interest YouTube channel, Instagram, Pipsy underscore AUS. There are many mechanisms. And if you're not happy with the social media, and many of us aren't, well, you can always leave a message on 0439395489. Or you can even write to me, and I do answer letters at Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052. Or you can email me at anarchistage at yahoo.com or info at pipcpibci.net. And don't forget to join Public Interest before Corporate Interest. Have a look at the website, 
download the application form, you can send it back uh, via social media or you can actually post it back to Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052. And remember, they don't care if tens of thousands of people took to the streets in January 26. They don't care if hundreds of thousands of people take to the streets on various issues. They have a monopoly on the use of force. They've got the laws, the police, the armed forces to ensure that the status quo continues. But they do care if you start enroaching on their parliamentary majority because that challenges their legitimacy as the representatives of the Australian people. So if you've been thinking about it, Now's the time. We'd like to apply for registration before the end of June in order to be in a position to contest the next federal election. If we can't register by then, well, we won't be in a position. We'll have to wait another three years. So the ball's in your court. P-C-P-I-B-C-I dot net. Now, India. Now, with the current dispute with China which to a large degree was a Morrison's gift to the uh, Trump administration. We've seen that Indian farmers are rebelling. Let's not forget that 50%, that's right, one in two Indians who are in work, work in the agricultural sector. That's over 300 million people those that are in work, are in the agricultural sector and they've been in that sector for generations, producing food for the country. Not for export, but food for the 1.2, 1.3 billion people which live on the Indian subcontinent. And the Modi government, which has risen on the shoulders of Hindu nationalism, and let's not forget that uh, the Modi government was elected and re-elected with a massive majority because they're actually able to fan the religious hatred, which is essential in a country, well, most countries in the world, these so-called manufactured religious differences. Now, the Indian farmers are beginning to understand the Modi government is not about Hindu nationalism, although it's been promoting Hindu nationalism and riding on the coattails of that nationalism, it's about bringing India into the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation family, which is such a big family on planet Earth in 2021. And the policies and laws they were thinking or trying to introduce would have meant that they would have deregulated the Indian agricultural markets. And many, if not up to 70 to 80% of Indian farmers would be out of business within a few years. And we saw this in Australia. Now, we always have in Australia the story of the struggling farmer. I understand the story of the struggling farmer, you know, trying to grow things in, a, in the environment that I'm living in currently. I understand that story. It's not an easy story. But, but the Australian farming community fell for the deregulation, privatisation, 
you know, bait, hook, line and sinker. And what we've seen over the last 20 years in this country is the destruction of many agricultural sectors at the expense of small farmers. So what we have now is agribusiness. Agribusiness. Large corporations dominating significant sections of Australian agriculture. And the so-called National Party, the former Country Party, is nothing more than a servant to the agribusiness sector. So here we have Australia, which deregulated its farming sector, which now relies on exports, knocking on the door of the Indian government, on the Indian parliament, trying to negotiate a free trade agreement between India and Australia. And what's the sticking point? Agriculture. And what do they need? They need the deregulation of the Indian agricultural sector. It's not just about making profits for transnational corporations. Indian agriculture is about providing employment and providing food for the population. Why would you destroy that sector in order to manufacture some free trade agreement so that, you know, corporations then begin to dominate the marketplace. Now, the Indian farmers weren't as stupid as many Australian farmers who agreed to demutualise and deregulate and get rid of uh, authorities which had protected them for generations in this country. They're fighting back. So let's keep an eye on what happens. I've just, I've just heard that the government has said, oh, we'll hold back the laws 18 months. Well, so what? So keep your eye on that. And next time they talk about demutualisation, next time they talk about deregulation in the farming sector in this country, let's talk about who is going to win at the end of the day. And it's those farms which are corporate-owned, corporate-managed, who will win in the end. And the small family-owned farms are those that go to the wall. No wonder there are so many mental health issues in rural and regional Australia when you find yourself in a situation indebted up to your neck and no way out and you're about to lose what may have been in your family for generations. You listen to the Anarchist World this week broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Now, sometimes even I'm shocked. Well, I'm not shocked, I'm revolted. If, you know, if I was a a different person, I'd be vomiting over the microphone, although I'm doing my best not to vomit over the microphone because what I've come across in the last 24 hours is enough to make any growing human being, even a dog, vomit. Now, I don't know if you know about the Boyer Lectures. The Boyer Lectures, in my opinion, are the preeminent lecture series, which is hosted by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, where an Australian has something to say 
has a number of sessions in which to say them to the Australian people. And usually the people who give the Boyer Lecture have made some significant contribution to the Australian community or to scientific advancement or to some type of uh, you know, issue-orientated struggle or economics. But I bet you can never guess who will be delivering this year's Boyer Lecture. Who will be delivering it and what the topic will be? It'll be our mate, your mate, the people's friend, the billionaire. That's right. Can I hear you? Tell me. No, no, no. It's not who you think it is. It's worse. It's worse. Who do you think? Twiggy Forrest. And he'll be talking about business and philanthropy. You like that word? Business, philanthropy, Twiggy Forest. You know, they talked about the, uh, what is it, the triangle of evil. Well, here we have it. Now look, now Mr Forrest has made his fortune at the expense not only of First Nations people, but at the expense of the Australian community. Successive federal governments of all political hues have given people like Mr Forrest access to resources which are owned by each and every one of us. And they have been able to exploit those resources and make billions of dollars, not just for themselves, but for their major shareholders. And if you look at Mr Forrest's uh, colourful history, as far as being an entrepreneur is concerned, and his, his interaction with Indigenous Australians, you can see that there are issues. Issues. But what I find interesting is when I hear a billionaire, it doesn't matter who the billionaire is, talk about philanthropy. You know, philanthropy is basically double speak for deciding who the deserving poor are. You make the decision about where that money, what you're donating, will go. And that's what it's about. You make the decision. When a social security system was introduced and people struggled and died to introduce social security systems in the Western world, it was based on the concept there wasn't such a thing as the deserving poor or the undeserving poor. Anybody who met the criteria could access that social security payment, although we have seen successive federal governments attempt to introduce that the deserving and undeserving poor concept by the introduction of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the card. You know, where you've got a, you have your social security benefits put in a card and you're restricted and where you can, how you can use that card. So here we have Mr. Twiggy Forrest, a billionaire, who's made his money from exploiting our resources, the people's resources, legally, totally legally, at the behest of the federal government. Now I'm going to give the Boyer lectures and talk about business and philanthropy, government, business and philanthropy. We don't need philanthropy. We don't need charity. What we need is, one, a taxation system which ensures the Googles, the Facebooks, you know, the uh, Fortescue Metals of the world pay their fair share of tax. Not pay the tax they currently pay, but their fair share of tax. And what we also need in this country especially 
is a sovereign wealth fund which is linked to the resources which are in the ground in this country. Diamonds, gold, uranium, coal, I hate, you know, coal, titanium, bauxite, manganese, lithium, mineral sands, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Now, the people of Norway, or successive governments in Norway, haven't been as stupid, as ignorant, as dumb, as successive Australian governments who've said to the corporate sector, here, for a peppercorn royalty, you can actually excavate these resources, make a buck out of them, and pay minimal taxation, if any taxation. And if somebody tries to introduce a super profit tax, like Mr Kevin Rudd, well, we'll get rid of him. Well, you see, when you saw the had the indignity of seeing multi-billionaires protesting that a super profits tax was going to cause them a little bit of discomfort. No, no, we don't need philanthropy. What we need is a sovereign wealth fund which is linked to the exploitation of our resources by the public sector, by us. There are our resources... They're resources which belong to the First Nations people. They're resources which will resolve many of the issues which we face today in this country. But no, we allow people like Mr Forrest and the other billionaires involved in the resource extraction industry, the BHP Billitons, the Rio Tintas of the world, to exploit those resources and we're throwing a few coins as payment. Well, the people of Norway are now enjoying the benefits of having a sovereign wealth fund of over $1.5 trillion, which is there for the benefit of four or five million Norwegians. And a practical example is the way the Norwegian government is giving incentives to, to Norwegian citizens to buy electric cars. And we've seen the rapid electrification of Norway moving away from fossil fuels as a result of the wealth which is in their foreign, which is in their sovereign wealth fund. We have a sovereign wealth fund, but it's not based on the resources, exploiting the resources that we own. We have given that right away to people who now, you know, Talk to me and you on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which is publicly funded in the Boyer Lectures, the most prestigious platform in this country about philanthropy and business. When we have over 700,000 children living in poverty, considering this is the week they go back to school, there'll be kids there who will not have from the very beginning of their education, the resources that they need in order to, you know, dig themselves out of the mire they find themselves in because of people who talk about business and philanthropy. Give me a break. I mean, I knew that things had reached a critical stage when I saw the Smith family, and I've got nothing against the Smith family, raising money in Australia to ensure that poor Australian children would have adequate funding to attend primary and secondary school. 
asking me and you to donate money to them. And you think to yourself, this is a rich country. We are just over 25 million people living on a continent, resource-rich continent. And I say this every week, and I'll say it every week while I'm broadcasting, until this issue is resolved. And we have to get a private charity to raise money in order to ensure that Australian kids get an education. When we have universal compulsory public education in this country. And you think to yourself, what have we become? And when I see Mr Forrest, Dr Forrest, I'd like to know where he got his bloody doctorate from, whether it was an honorary doctorate. I mean, I'm a Dr Toscano, but I've got a doctorate of medicine from Melbourne University, which was given to me in 1986 for original research, which made a significant contribution to knowledge in the area that I was looking at. I worked for my bloody doctorate. It took me five years. Five bloody years. Not that it's of any use to anybody. Dr Forrest, that's what he's been promoted as, giving the Boyer lectures on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation publicly funded about business and philanthropy. Give me a break. Give me a break. Extraordinary. Just extraordinary. Just extraordinary. Hard to believe. Well, it's true. I didn't make it up. I'd love to have made it up. <laughs> Bit of manufactured reality. But unfortunately, we don't need to manufacture reality. Reality is so crappy that it's just incredible. Incredible. So this is what's happened to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Brought to its knees with funding cuts, short-term contracts, people being driven out of the organisation, not enough money to provide rural and regional services, and now we have Dr Forrest providing the intellectual input into the Boyer Lecture, the most prestigious platform in this country. Extraordinary. Ah, let's move on. I mean, if I keep this up, I'll get a stroke, which is not going to help anybody. There'll be a few people cheering, but uh, maybe a listener or two would shed a tear. Let's move on. Let's move on. Social media. Now, I'm utilising social media, obviously very limited success, as most people are. And we're continually told that social media has now taken the place of the public square. You like those two words? The public square. You know the public square in the good old days, which never existed, when you'd walk out and there everybody in the community would be and you'd chat away at sunset and have a drink and solve the problems of the world and go home and, you know, restart the next day. The public square. And they're equating social media with the public square. Well, I equate social media with the privately owned Randolph Hearst Yellow Press. Now, those of you who are old enough will may remember the Yellow Press. And the Yellow Press, it was called the Yellow Press because the paper was yellow because they were using cheap paper. 
And it was people like Hearst who did everything they could in the 20s and 30s to ensure that reforms and radical activity was pillarised, pauperised, marginalised, criminalised. And their technique was very simple. Sensational reporting. Man bites dog. Two-headed baby. Four-headed serpent. Sensationalised reporting. Because sensationalised reporting meant more people looked at the garbage and you could sell more advertising and make more profits. Well, social media is not a public square. It is not owned by you and me. It is not owned by the people of the village or the town. Social media is a private square. It's like a private beach. You're not a member. You can't go on the beach in many European countries and security will turf you off. It's like a private club. And the social media platform for making a buck, and let's not forget social media, whether it's Google, Facebook, whatever they like to call themselves, is about making a buck. And you make a buck by, is determined by the number of eyes which look at the ads on your platform. Because when you're negotiating your social media input, obviously you're going to be flooded by ads every minute of the day. And the more ads they have, the more revenue they have. And following the Randall Hurst yellow tabloid, you know, strategy, it's about sensational input. The more sensational, the more conspiratorial, the more way out, the more manufactured reality, the more eyes on your page. And the fact is, you do pay. You pay with your personal information. Your personal information is the mechanism they use in order to tailor advertising towards you. So it is not a public square. It is not an area of three discussion. It is an area of sensationalism for the sake of getting more eyes on that particular site in order to ensure that you sell more advertising revenue and make more profits for the major shareholders of that corporation. Now, I'm not, not telling you not to use social media. Obviously, there are ways you can exploit the situation where you don't give them that much information and use it for your own benefit. But the reality is that any time they can terminate you, inverted commas, terminate with prejudice, your little page, your little input, and any time they can take their ball and bat and run away because we have allowed them to create huge duopolies around the globe and we have allowed them to grow and grow and grow on the Randolph-Hearst principle of sensationalism for the very fact of increasing private profits for them. Think about it. It is the, the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. 
Well, well, well. Honours list. Extraordinary, isn't it? Just a few facts and figures. Over half of the CEOs, that's Chief Executive Officers of 500 major corporations in Australia, have had New Year's honours lists bestowed on them. And if you look at Invasion Day New Year's honours list, same story. Now, I know the big story of the day was Margaret Court and her elevation up the New Year's honours list to the top list. Now, the New Year's honours list is basically a political payment. And obviously, Madam Court's elevation was due to the fact that there are people in our society who are unhappy with the way the debate regarding marriage equality has been going. And obviously pushing up her up the ladder was not about Margaret Court and her achievements, which she did 30 years ago on the tennis court. It was basically a political push. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand the honours list. Because if you think the so-called Invasion Day Queen... Lizzie's birthdays, honours lists, are not politically motivated. Look at the structure of the list. It is broken up into a hierarchy of honours and ex-prime ministers always get the top honour. It is a tradition, a tradition. We always see that. And we see that, you know... And on the bottom of the honours list, of the hierarchy of, you know, there's the old battler story which the newspapers and social media likes to run every year to tell us what a wonderful thing the honours list is. But ultimately, the great majority of people who are on the honours list obtain that honour not because of what they have done for the Australian people, the Australian public. They receive that honour because of the position of authority and power they hold in Australian society. And I'll give you an example. I'll give you a, a personal example. And I am very grateful, and I'll tell you why. Now, during the dark days of the Howard regime, where I was kicked out of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation for giving Mr Howard a hard time, a few years later I was nominated for an honour not because of my radical political activities, but because of my contribution to medicine, right? And obviously the people who did all the work to push it, you know, eventually came back, I knew nothing about it, came back to me and said, Joe, it's a pity. And I said, why? And they said, well, we nominated you, we did all the work, you're, you're shooing, but at the last moment you were rejected. And I said, oh. And I said, yeah, you're rejected because you're an anarchist. Simply. So for generations, what I'm trying to say to you is that the so-called honours list is a way of rewarding those people who support the status quo. Obviously, you need to give a little bit of credibility and at the lower levels, you honour some people who've actually made a contribution to Australian society and helped the Australian people. The majority of people are there because of the position of authority they enjoy, whether it's in the private sector or the public sector. And that's why in 2005, we created the Eureka Australia Medal. On Eureka Day, on the 3rd of December every year, 
at Sovereign Hill in Ballarat, where the Eureka Oath was sworn, we swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. We honour six people living in this country that have to be Australian citizens or permanent residents, but six people living in this country who have made a major contribution to activism, who have, through their blood, sweat and tears, volunteers who have gone out of their way to ensure that people in this society are treated in a more humane and egalitarian manner. So if you want to nominate somebody for the Eureka Australia Medal, you need to send in a written nomination with their name, a contact address and a paragraph or two of why. And we choose six at the end of the year. 2020 was a different year. We only chose one, Mr Julian Assange. But next year we'll go back to our traditional structure of choosing six people. So we need nominations. Forget about the Invasion Day, Queen Lizzie's birthday, honours list. Nominate somebody for the Eureka Australia Medal. You can do it by going to the Anarchist Media Institute website. Send us an email, anarchistage at yahoo.com or info at pipsy.net. You can always write to me at post office box 20. Parkville 3052. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week. Hopefully you've got your uh, non-synapsing neurons synapsing once again. Hopefully you're just as annoyed as I am about what's happening. But more importantly, don't be annoyed. Don't throw a brick at your computer. Get organised. Get involved. Change the world. It's up to you. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. That number, 0439. 395-489. Those websites, anarchismedia.org, pipsy.net. That post office box, post office box 20, Parkville 3052. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. That's the difference between social media, which is totally privatised square, and the Community Radio Network. The Community Radio Network is about bringing together stations which broadcast to their local communities regarding issues at the local, national and international levels. It's more of a cooperative than a private square. It is a public square of communication. And that's what I'm talking about. Social media privatised media, newspapers, privatised media, government geld at ABC, government geld at ABC. Listen in to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. And remember, get out of that chair and start working. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Brainwash minds. Oh, larger.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.